0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Before I introduce my guest today, I'd like to take a moment to talk about a tragedy that happened this summer while the show was on break. I'm talking about the car accident that killed Congresswoman Jackie Walorski and two of her staffers. Zachary Potts, her district director, was 27. Emma Thompson who was the Congresswoman's communications director was 28. Also the the driver of the other car Edith Schmucker age 56 was also killed. The death of a member of Congress is almost always newsworthy and it should be. The people of Indiana's second congressional district lost a community leader and Congress lost a member who was by all accounts well respected and well liked. The nature of being A staffer, though, is to be behind the scenes. It is naturally less newsworthy, though I should note that Emma and Zachary's lives have also been beautifully recognized and remembered by many. One of the things that makes this tragedy hard is that the circumstances um, around the accident are well known to anyone who has worked for a legislative office or a campaign. Driving around the district is a central function of a lawmaker's time in their state. I did not know Emma or Zachary, and I only met Congresswoman Wolorski a couple of times, but I can picture the scene of what they were doing that day. Members of Congress are normally seated in the passenger seat. And the reason why they're driven around by staff is not because they, you know, need limousine service. It's because they're working that entire time. Uh, She was probably on the phone talking with, you know, a constituent, a staff member, somebody in the district. Um, She could have been reading a memo on some issue that she'd asked for. She could have been reviewing the speech she was about to go give. Um, You know, the person driving was I'm sure, trying to, you know, make sure that they were going to be on time and, and things were organized and that the boss would be there with, you know, enough time to prepare. In the back seat. another staffer was probably either wrapping up the last event they were just at or preparing for the next one, or maybe even the one after that. Time in the car with the member is a part of working for a lawmaker. And it is, is sort of the beating heart of being connected to one's district. Um, Those moments in the car can be stressful because there's a lot of activity that I just described uh, and schedules are tight. It can also be joyful. There are, you know, there are moments of humor where you just, you know, you laugh about something that just happened. Um, You get to See the humanity in one another because people are tired. Um, And they are supportive um, because it really is like the launch pad for for each thing that's going to happen that day. And, you know, there are many political people who will say driving the boss was one of the most important jobs they ever had because they got to see politics and constituent service right up close. The tributes to Zachary and Emma say that they were passionate about their work and energetic in the way they pursued it. They knew that it mattered and they enjoyed their work. They enjoyed their colleagues, their boss. Um, And their loss really saddens me. I know it is heartbreaking to those who knew and loved them. This show is about staffers. And so I wanted to talk about them. Everyone associated with the show sends our deepest condolences to all of the families and friends of the four victims, and we especially want to honor Emma and Zachary for their career as staffers. As you know, I don't normally um, address... Um, you know, current events on uh, as I introduce the show, but I know that my next guest would have wanted me to. His name is Tom Perriello, and today he is the executive director of Open Society U.S., the world's largest private funder of independent groups working for justice, democratic governance, and human rights. He was named one of the new civic leaders by Time Magazine in 2010. He got his start, uh, like many of us, as a staffer, um, he, uh, but it wasn't exactly as, in the same way that many uh, who work in American politics do, as you'll hear. In 2008, Tom ran for Congress uh, to represent Virginia's 5th Congressional District. While in Congress, Tom supported landmark legislation, including the Affordable Care Act, DREAM Act, and climate and stimulus legislation. And since his time in Congress, Tom has served as president and CEO of the Center for American Progress Action Fund and as a counselor for policy at the Center for American Progress. He then returned to uh, government service at the U.S. State Department. He was asked by John Kerry to lead the 2015 Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review. And then he was asked by President Obama to serve as special envoy to the Great Lakes region of Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo. We talked quite a bit about how Tom got into politics, where he found uh, the most meaning uh, in, in kind of what the what the driving force behind his interest in serving others always was and how that manifested. I was so honored to connect with Tom today, uh, and I'm thrilled to be able to present this episode to you. We recorded it on Tuesday, August 16th. Tom Periello, welcome to Staffer. And uh, Papa, <laughs> good to see you, thank you for having me. Tom, it is wonderful to have you on the show today. Um, let me begin, as I often do, uh, by asking you just to describe a bit about where you grew up and what family life was like.
1: You don't want to start with you walking me off the political plank and being there to cheer me. We'll go back to earlier in the story. Um,
0: we we held hands together. We did yeah, it together. No,
1: it was a beautiful swan dive that I have no regrets <laughs> about. Um, uh had a really um idyllic um uh childhood you know growing up outside of charlottesville virginia and the beautiful shenandoah to incredible loving parents i was the youngest of four kids i knew all four of my grandparents into their 90s um and they instilled in me all the values of service and the american dream from my italian immigrant parents who uh grandparents who came in and out of poverty my um Uh, Irish grandparents who survived the depression, and my grandmother was sort of a a proto-feminist, and my grandfather was a high school coach and teacher and and veteran. And then growing up in the um, very alive oral history of the civil rights movement in Charlottesville, um, a town that um, remained quite conservative then, even though the city was blue, the county was red, Um, and people who'd lived through massive resistance, who'd lived through the um, raising of Vinegar Hill, the black middle-class neighborhood, um, telling those stories um, and uh, and other things that sort of gave me a sense both of how lucky I was, um, but also that that came with some sense of uh, needing to give back.
0: So you went off to Yale uh, as an undergraduate and you also obtained your law degree there. And then you became a staffer in a way that not many people become staffers. That is most of the folks I talk to um, have worked in American government at one level or another or American politics. And you began uh, a, a, on a career in international law and justice-based security strategies. From 2002 to 03, you worked in the United Nations mandated special court for Sierra Leone, where you served as special advisor and spokesperson to the prosecutor for the special court. I know that this work was deeply impactful uh, for you and for the community that you were serving, but can you talk to us about that core and your work?
1: Sure. I mean, in some ways, this goes back to college. Um, and I did work on the Hill, by the way. I had a one-month internship for L.F. Payne. Um, I did not know that. So my, my two jobs on the Hill have been a one-month college intern and member, um, both in the same <laughs> office, actually. Um, but in college, uh, to be frank, I was shaped in um, uh, in many ways by a appreciation of, appreciation of, but also reaction against uh, the Clinton presidency. And I remember having a very keen sense that President Clinton was, you know, more talented than I would ever be, um, more compelling than I would ever be, um, but also always seemed a little too focused on what got him to the next election. And I saw in a lot of the Yale students around me, whether of privilege or not, um, that they all had these goals of where they wanted to be 35 years from now. And meanwhile, we had you know genocides going on in, in Rwanda and in the Balkans. And it seemed to me that there was something to be said for answering the question, how can I make the most difference right now? How can I use my talents and privileges right now? And going and following that, and in particular doing so where there was risk involved, whether that was physical risk or political risk, because that was the other thing I seemed to see from a lot of the people in that Clinton era was, uh, you know, and politicians in general, was a sort of a risk aversion and ability to rationalize, um, you know, what gets you to that, that next rung. So the work I started to do first on, you know, climate and environmental issues, then on atrocity prevention issues. Um, you know, it was really in that vein. And in law school, um, you know, Sierra Leone was considered um, the worst place on earth by the UN Development Index. It was a life expectancy of like 34, um, 10 years of civil war, and the U.S. government had managed to make it uh, even worse by misplaying some things in the region that we can geek out on. And uh, I actually read a, a, a an article. I was working. Um, I was interning at the. Uh, state department for Harold co and I read an article by Ryan Lizza who was then at new Republic, um, about the Lome peace agreement and how the U S had basically gotten suckered into backing the wrong actors. Jesse Jackson was the envoy there. Clinton, you know, was the president and here was the, you know, a place that had suffered so badly and we'd managed to make it worse. And I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to be helpful there. Um, And I'm not going to leave until this guy, Charles Taylor, is out of power. Um, And uh, of all things, um, I went over my third year in law school and was working with mostly Sierra Leonean women who were the ones standing up to the junta and and the rebels. And I remember Zainab Angora saying, you know, you got to move here. You've got, you know, we've got 12 months to get a peace deal, to disarm the rebels, to um, try to have elections and to try to set up these accountability mechanisms to prevent the cycle of violence from continuing. And I said to her, we're sitting under a tree. um, You know, what can I do? I'm a, you know, white guy from Central Virginia. I don't speak any of the languages. Um, How can I be useful? And she said, if you're standing next to me, I'm a lot less likely to get shot. And that would be really useful to me, which I thought was the best job pitch I'd ever had. Um, And so I went to the Open Society Foundation, which I now work for, and said, hey, I want to try this thing. Uh, I might die. I'm going to be sneaking across borders, meeting with warlords, helping these women try to get a seat at the peace talks, um, pretty low probability of success. And uh, you know, will you give me forty thousand dollars or thirty five thousand dollars, whatever it was? Um, and they were like, "Yes," which is what I thought philanthropy worked like until I realized that no other philanthropy in the world <laughs> works that way and, and takes that kind of risk like Open Society does. So, you know, in that process, um, I was able to <clears throat> to go and be um, and be supportive of Zyneb and this group of women, and in fact. We came up with this very uh, creative way, uh, very geeky, like for all the cloak and dagger stuff we did, it ends up this super geeky mathematical thing was what broke through, which I can tell you about. Um, women got a seat at the table and in less than six weeks, the 10-year deadlock, uh, deadlock was over. They got a peace deal. And one of the key elements of that was the setting up of this war crimes tribunal, um, which was the first since in Nuremberg to be located in the country where the atrocities had taken place. Uh, I then went and helped uh, run that court for the first year when we were doing the um, unsealing of the indictments of um, the various worst warlords, including uh, Charles Taylor in nearby Liberia. And um, just to complete the D.C. beltway part of this story, when we unsealed the indictment against Taylor and we were able to back him out of power without firing a single bullet, Ryan Liza called me. It was the first time we ever talked. And he said, this seems exactly like LoMay, except for this time there was an indictment and Taylor couldn't wiggle his way out of it. And I was like, yeah. And that was in part because I read that article uh, that you wrote and um, came and, you know, we were going to do it differently this time. So that gave me a sense at a very young age that even problems that seem intractable from a distance um, can be solved where there's political will. And that that's particularly true where it's people of color and therefore white folks in power are more likely to buy into a notion of hopelessness because that uh, frees them from the guilt of having created the problem and or not solved it. Um, And that when you do show up and you work with people, amazing things can happen. And, you know... Had I been saying, how do I get to Congress at the age of 34? None of that would have been part of my life. Uh, I would have gone to you know, clerk for a judge in Virginia. Nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, Done some uh, Boys and Girls Club stuff. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but when I eventually ran, I think what people really responded to was a sense of the core question in so much of politics, which is why. What motivates this person? Do they share my values? Are they going to have my interests at heart? And you know the consultants told me not to talk about the work in Africa. i just come back from Afghanistan at that point, so they were like, "You can talk about Afghanistan, but not Africa." And I was like, "You know, that may be why the candidates you keep consulting for keep losing. Is you sort of have this caricatured view of what people in rural Virginia are going to respond to, and the fact that you know I." I believe in reducing human suffering. I believe in um, human flourishing. I believe in the idea of of, uh, sacrifice and risk for the greater good was something and that part of that came from my faith tradition um, was something that actually rather than being othering was a bridge into parts of my district that would not have otherwise uh, heard or said, like, hey, this is just another, you know, Yaley who wants to get into office. There was a very clear sense of like, wait a second, that's not what someone would have done who is primarily motivated by, you know, power or rungs on the ladder. So um, I think that sort of decision in college to always say, where can I make the most difference right now? How do I test different theories of change? How do I put the talents and privileges I have to, um, to use for those um, in the trenches has been the reason my life has had so much purpose and meaning and, and joy.
0: You know, I, I hope our listeners are appreciating why I really loved getting the opportunity to talk to you so much while you're in Congress, because I always leave these conversations both better informed and inspired because you've just given such a great crystallization for the the right route of public service. Um, and i want to I want to return to what you described as sort of your um your North Star which um has a term called conviction politics, because i want to I do want to return to that. Um, but since you did mention the uh, the importance of a mathematical formula, I have to ask you to tell that story just because you were involved in harrowing work that was, you know as as you described in one of the most dangerous and um, you know, a source of such human suffering that you were able to change through your work. So tell us (laughs) what that formula was and and why it played an outsized role. So
1: my sort of initial um, cover story, for lack lack of a better word, was teaching at the university, and the university was just taking back students. So it wasn't many who are my age or even older because the university had been shut down for a number of the years during the war. So I was teaching both the law school and undergraduate. And one of the things that everyone kind of agreed on in the peace talks was that part of the problem was the way that the US, UK, and particularly the UN were running the talks was there were three armed groups, um, the RUF rebels, uh, the CDF, which had been sort of the Junta, well, the CDF rebels, and then the Junta AUMF, trying to remember all this from back in the day, that had been sort of the military junta. And they were basically constantly arguing over how many seats in the cabinet, how many power positions they would get, essentially a power sharing arrangement. Um, And they also had perverse incentives, which often happened, which was they were getting a per diem for the talks, which means they were making money by stretching the talks out. And usually what would happen, and Charles Taylor was, of course, the, the main person turning all this up next door in Liberia. So he knew that the West and the U.N. just love a good ceasefire because they feel good about it. So he'd basically fight until he was in a weak position. He would declare a ceasefire, get a good headline out of it, use that time to kind of, you know, gear up, rest up, arm up. And then he would just start the war again when it was advantageous for him to do so. So there was just this cycle about it. Um And we were like, we have just this should be an embarrassment for the U.N. and the Brits. The Brits in particular were leading under Blair at the time. And um, the problem was nobody had run a public opinion poll ever in the country. Um, And one of the challenges to that was that there had not been a legitimate census in over 20 years. So there was no way methodologically to run a legitimate poll. So I put this challenge to my students and said, how would you find a statistically meaningful way to poll in the country? And this was sort of a semester long challenge. And about uh, seven or eight weeks in, someone uh, it was actually a group of three women who came in and they had figured out, that there were three flour factories that provided all of the flour that went to the bread baking that then went and was distributed across the city. And they used this to create a statistical analysis of at least Freetown in the greater metropolitan area. And then then they measured that against various language groups in the country to basically be able to test against tribal deviation. We ran it through the ringer. It was like a plus or minus of six or seven, but it was still like, you know, whatever. So we ran the first public opinion poll based on this very like, you know, mathematical geeky thing. And it showed that like, I forget the numbers. It was overwhelming. It was like 92% of people disliked all three armed groups that were at the table. 90% wanted these women in civil society at the table. There were a number of other things that were covered in it, but basically it gave... The good people inside who wanted to shake it up, a, a good thing to hold on to. And it was extremely embarrassing to those who had been saying, Oh, you naive folks, this is just how it's done. And as soon as other people were in the room and could call it out, the dynamics of the the talks changed. So yes, the the flower production bread route population distribution was what allowed <laughs> that first uh first poll to run.
0: Amazing. So you- So pollsters
1: are not always evil. There
0: this you is, go, you know, right? I did go. not know that story uh, and pollsters played uh, a critical role. Um, so you worked in uh, yeah, Sierra Leone, Kosovo, Darfur, Afghanistan, and then you ran for Congress in 2008. So why? You know, what, what was the turning point where you said, the next best place for me to apply my energies and talents is Congress?
1: So in between those, I basically went back and forth between a a justice struggle overseas and a justice struggle at home. Um, So I was working on a number of issues at home, including, uh, you know, anti-poverty efforts, anti-torture efforts during the war on terror. And um, 2004 and five, I did a lot of work to to sort of revive and elevate what we might call the old religious left or the prophetic faith community, pushing back on the religious rights monopoly on faith and really calling out issues of justice and mercy and peace. Got to work with Reverend Jim Forbes, who was of the Riverside Church at that point, and and several others, started faithfulamerica.org. So I was back and forth between these, and I was looking at, you know, how do you really make a difference and what makes a difference? And came up pretty much thinking that, Movements change the world and politicians show up to cut the ribbon. Um, And what I felt over time of coming into the halls of power often to brief people on the things that I was working on was it's true. Most politicians, sadly, are kind of lemmings and take the the path of least resistance. They get the photo op. But, you know, it's others that did it. But if you look at the moments of great change, it was much more of a partnership. Uh, You know, politicians have to work within the sense of what's possible. Movements have to change the sense of what's possible. But real change happens when movements are on their A game and really, really pushing that sense of what's possible and not just, you know, shaming people or whatever else. And politicians are willing to push the envelope of what's possible. And Martin Luther King and LBJ are certainly the sort of classic paradigm on that. And one of my favorite all time scenes in movies is the opening scene of Selma when King and LBJ are having that conversation. And some LBJ fans felt like it wasn't fair to Johnson, but I actually think it captures him perfectly. You know, he's basically saying to King, which was not unreasonable, dude, you know, I did the civil rights act, you know, I'm doing the war on poverty here, like help, help a brother out. And King is like, voting rights is everything. Like this is power. This is juries. This is voting. And LBJ basically says, look, It's on you to change the politics of the issue to make it possible for me to do that. And the Selma, Pettus Bridge stuff comes out of that. And so I think that's in many ways, you know, I I haven't had a lot of modern equivalents of that. But I actually think this climate bill is an example of that um, with much fewer people who had to get beaten along the way. But in the sense that like movements from the sunrise movements to the League of Conservation Voters types absolutely kept this issue on the forefront. And if you go back to the primary, President Biden's was not one of the more ambitious proposals, but you look at Jay Inslee came in, right? And Jay Inslee set that new gold standard. And that was in part a politician listening to movements who'd gone to the state of Washington, tried two carbon taxes, and finally realized this neoliberal approach that all of the Beltway loves is actually BS. And a more industrial green policy is something that produces better results for the climate, better jobs, and is better politically. And that comes in through your, you know, your evergreens and others to shape this agenda that president biden's willing to push forward to a point that even with someone heavily tied to the coal industry as the 50th vote we are able to see not the cap and trade end story that we saw together which we can talk about um but 13 years later 13 years a month and 10 days later um passage in the house on something i I actually went back uh and was on the floor for the vote for that which is really nice and it was fascinating because you know 13 years earlier, it was like, okay, you know, this is a vote that's worth losing my job over. And here was something where frontliners were like, hey, this is going to help us. This is great. I mean, it's great for the planet. It makes a lot of it worth it. But this is also a winning issue for us. That change has been made possible by movements. But it was also true that you had to get to 50 in the Senate. You had to have politicians, you know, Democratic leadership ready to push it. You had to have a president uh, refusing to lose on it. And I think that's, you know, what I've taken away from these experiences is, um, you know, that it's those moments, it's sort of the Doppler effect or the wave effect thing where occasionally those waves come together. And that's when most most change happens.
0: You know, when when you and I were working together uh, and I'm not uh, just saying this uh, to flatter you, but you were different from the 75 to 85 other members who I worked with, your style, your commitment to conviction politics, which you described before, um, was unique. And that's not to say that other members of Congress don't have convictions. They do. That's not to say that others aren't willing to lose an election you know, to take a tough vote on an important matter because they are and many did. Uh, But I'm wondering if you can kind of give your description of how it plays out in real life. Because on the one hand, the American public wants desperately elected officials who have convictions and are willing to take tough votes. And on the other side, our system does depend on Elected officials being responsive to the public and hearing what they say and right and responding to that. So how did you in a, in a you know day-to-day, week-to-week basis navigate that?
1: So there were a few things. So one, you know, I'll start with what may seem more mundane to your listeners, but isn't. I mean, what I said to my team in the first couple of weeks was, we have to be perfect on the local stuff so that I can go big on the national stuff. Um, And that's in part because people correctly assume if you care enough about me to get my letter returned to meet with this constituency group that I'm part of uh, to show up for this birthday, you probably care about the community enough to also be at least thinking of our interests when you're voting on the climate bill. Now, there are obviously people who are excellent at gaming that system, right? I don't have that gift of remembering people's names, right? I would love to have that because it is a way of seeming like you care about people, frankly, more than you do, right? Now, it is, uh, I have attention deficit, so I don't retain it better. So, like, people kind of take that and assume, like, oh, so Tom didn't even listen. I usually remember the story, but I don't remember the name, right? But it means something to people, right? It's um, And so, you know, we wanted to do that. In order to avoid, and I think you've seen this done very well by, you know, the Katie Porters of the world, the, uh, you know, AOC for the grief that some people try to give her like she's getting the constituency work done by all reports and in that first race she knocked the doors, and I think where you've seen charismatic candidates come in. Who are like I'm going to run on an all national campaign? Like it's it's not nearly effective. So that was one. Like people had to see me, and so in our campaign we put an inordinate amount. So I started out 36 points behind. No Democrat had come within 20 points in the district, and I said people need to have met me and and or a member of my team at least twice before they start seeing the TV ads. They have to have a reason to believe that I'm not just another person running. Um, we can debate statistically whether that worked. There's some debate in the team, but we were out there. We were everywhere. Same thing that's true. The greatest compliment I ever got when I was in Congress was that I was frequently called the mayor of the fifth district. And that was the feel I wanted. And this is a district the size of New Jersey. So that wasn't easy, right? Now it helped that I was 34 with no kids and could just like, you know, and I worked 20 hours a day. And since this is called staffer, I will say, you know, probably the single most significant thing President Obama did for me, was change the quality of the team I was able to hire because there were people that were coming into public service or back into public service, inspired by the president, who lost my district when I won it, as I always like to point out to him. Um, but uh, you know, people like Ridge Schuyler, who'd worked on the Hill for years, had retired to Charlottesville and were doing amazing work, and they came back in, so that he was my district director, and he was just hitting at a level that was five rungs above what you would expect. Um, and we actually put together to this climate bill, we put together a blueprint for a clean energy future in fifth district based on, you know, doing all these listening tours and everything. And we then leveraged hundreds of millions of dollars of stimulus funding into private funding. I mean, we really just, you know, it was an amazing moment, amazing team, and it was taking full advantage of those sorts of things. Uh, The conviction, so that always helped with the conviction point, but it was interesting because, you know, I made the cap and trade vote before I made the healthcare vote, um in terms of how the sequence went down and there were a lot of people who were the more conservative and libertarian members who i remember saying you know look basically this wasn't their terminology but conviction politics only goes too far i believed you. i didn't agree with your cap and trade vote but i believe that you believed in your cap and trade vote i believe that you really thought it was the best thing for the district but when you did that and obamacare then like Ultimately, like, yes, it may be your convictions, but I just don't share your convictions. And that's why I was so at peace with the result. I actually think I probably should have lost the election in terms of where I was vis-a-vis my district. My district was a very, very conservative district. It was, you know, R plus anywhere from seven to eleven, depending on how you counted it. Um, and you know, I would like to think that um uh I mean, we can get into a lot of the the tensions of it being a parliamentary system with the first past the post, et cetera. But ultimately, I think you owe people your conviction. You owe people, you know, as a representative, you got to listen to them before you make your decision. Make your decision as best you can and then explain your decision back and then let the chips fall where they may. Um, and if your convictions are too far out of touch with your constituents convictions, Then it's not a it's not an insult. It's just that you're not the best representative for that space. Now, there are a number of factors, countervailing pressures there, uh, namely this parliamentary one, which is that most people in my district, um, even in a very polarized time, gave us very high marks on shares values works for us all the things that you would want has integrity. Um, But ultimately, I think, uh, well, I know from talking to people felt like a vote for me was a vote for Speaker Pelosi, who I think the world of, but my constituents didn't. Um, And it's true. Like if you go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, it probably mattered more that you were represented by Tom Perriel than Robert Hurt, who was my opponent in that time, because everyone knew I was going to work 10 times harder than anyone else and deliver. But our system after Gingrich had become one where, you know, the something that seemed actually good to me at the time, getting rid of seniority, meant that instead of the ranking member being the second most powerful person on the committee, the lowest ranking member of the majority party had more power than the ranking member. And when that happened, there was really zero incentive to do anything other than scorched earth, which which the Republicans had obviously done. So I think with conviction and, and, you know, lest I be put up on a a pedestal of my own convictions, I clearly made compromises. Um, Some of those the speaker helped with. I was endorsed by the NRA because the speaker outsmarted the NRA. They had a system of endorsing incumbents who never voted against them. So she didn't allow any votes other than a couple of token votes. And that was a clear sense of like playing against type in the district to try to feel like I was responsive to that issue in the district. It's not something I'm proud of, um, even at the time with the NRA's clear decision to go in in an extreme direction, though it had been more moderate when I was growing up. Um, so, you know, you make decisions as you go. And some of those are cultural signifiers to say, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm one of you. And I was 34 and I made some good decisions and bad decisions, but I think the ones that I don't regret at all are where I listened. Uh, I looked into my deepest principles. I made a decision that I felt principled about, and then explained that to my constituents and let it go from there.
0: You know, you, um, You described the importance of staff work happening around you in order to accomplish what you need to as an elected official. So let me just ask you, what separates the great staffer from the regular?
1: Hmm. Um, I mean, look, I think that, first of all, D.C. has many problems, but it is blessed with some of the most talented staff around. And I think that the the best staff are ones that are mission-oriented, not here for the game um, who, uh, are get shit done types. Um, and often, you know, generalists, unless they're working on a staff and then you really want that expertise that drills down. Um, I think in the case of a member, part of what made a difference was people, you know, one of the decisions I made early, Lise Clavel had been my uh, campaign director, um, And she'd never been in politics before. So she'd originally been like a finance intern or something because she was killing time before she went to law school. And then very quickly, she moved out the ranks to campaign director and has never been to law school now, as she will remind you. I'm sure you know, Lee. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the one thing everyone told me was don't hire your campaign manager for your chief of staff. It's going to sound like a good idea, um, but you need someone who knows the Hill. Um, Lee's was first first of all is just one of those people that's off the chart talent wise but she also understood what we were doing we weren't trying to do the normal like okay how do you start building an eight or ten year career I was fine having a short career in the house. I would have liked to stay longer, but it wasn't, didn't mean that much to me compared to making the difference while we were there. So I think in the same thing with Ridge and Ridge, who was the district director understood this in terms of like, I mean, he's an old Bobby Kennedy, like knows every Bobby Kennedy speech, like multiracial poverty work. So he had that passion um, in the trenches, but also because he'd worked for all the way back to the Chuck Robb era and other things like he knew how to pull the levers and the systems so he could backstop Lee's on that early. Um, we got uh, Beth Elliott in, who was someone who had more Hill experience as an LD, and her father was a, a cattle rancher, not cattle rancher, cattle farmer in uh, in, in one of my counties. So, we really put together um, uh, a great team. Eric Cage, who's now running a uh, president of an HBCU, actually, I think in, in West Virginia, just a supremely talented team. So, uh, people who understand you know, what the mission is, what the priorities are. And then we just bonded. I mean, you know, we were under death threat uh, all the time. We were getting, you know, nasty calls with the N-word. We were getting spit on and kicked. You know, they tried to blow up my brother's house thinking it was my house. So there was a real sense at that point of being in something very special together. So we went from sort of bonding initially over, you know, Obama is going to change everything. We're going to hug it out. It's going to be wonderful to, oh my God, this is the, you know, beginning of frankly, a lot of the dynamics we see today. And we were right on the front lines of it. So, you know, I think that um, uh, it's, um, and many of them have just gone on to go to, to do amazing things, but there was a real sense of um, being part of something larger than ourselves, both with our office and with that moment.
0: So there are a, a number of things I could and would like to, if we had more time, ask you about including your time at um, uh, Center for American Progress Action Fund as CEO. You returned to the State Department in 2014 to lead the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review process. Then uh, President Obama appointed you to serve as the U.S. Special Envoy for the African Great Lakes. Um, but since you have talked about um You know that the what's wrong with our political culture, Um, and and we what what is wrong feels very exquisite and painful at times right now. Um, But as you said, you were living through some of you know the very same things that give us such concern and stress today. Back more than ten years ago, Um, Open Society Foundations is in part dedicated to addressing some of these fundamental problems. Um, Could you talk to us about what you are doing today, um, both from an organizational level and what uh, you're doing directly?
1: Yeah. I I think one of the things that was really useful going into Congress, um, despite a young age, was having been exposed to real crises around the world. And so the idea to me, I mean, I did always... You know, I appreciated the you know the love and accolades I got for what were called tough votes, but I was always astounded by how low we'd set the bar for a tough vote. Uh, being elected as a Democrat and voting for climate change legislation and healthcare reform really shouldn't be. Um, something that I'm still dining out on 13 years later, um, or op-edding out on. That seems like the op-ed <laughs> I always get, right, is the happy loser op-ed. Um, the, the governor's race probably helped with that too. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think when you think about what people face every day around the world and around this country, uh, the idea of you know becoming a former member of Congress just isn't that like tough of a uh, of an outcome. It's actually a Pretty good gig, probably better than being in Congress. In fact, almost certainly better than being in Congress. And I think also it allowed when the threats started to come with the Tea Party and others, that you know, I had a, a very strong sense that this was something different than a set of one-off threats. What you see in places where genocide happens or atrocities happen or other things is an enabling environment when powerful voices, particularly in the media and leadership, start to validate the idea of going outside the law, which Glenn Beck was doing at the time. Like, if you honestly believe that President Obama was an illegitimate president, if you honestly believed he was a Kenyan plant who, you know, was – Um, trying to destroy America, if you honestly believe that ACA was unconstitutional and a threat to freedoms, frankly, you would be. It's not hard to get justified that taking certain extrajudicial sort of vigilante-type steps would make sense. And I still remember so much when these threats were escalating, one of these caucuses we had with the Capitol Police and it was, of course, the Congressional Black Caucus and particularly John Lewis and Clyburn, who I remember trying to explain to them because they kept being like, we have a protocol for this. This is what happens when Pelosi gets the threats, when Hoyer gets the threats. And we're like, no, 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 we get that. There is a very big difference between individualized attacks in that sense um, by sort of lone wolf actors versus the kind of mob violence that we're looking at w- at that time and that needed to be really tamped down and addressed. And even then you saw a shockingly uh, paltry number of Republicans come forward and try to condemn uh, the kind of violence and threats. Um, So seeing it at that level, whether it was, you know, uh, Eric getting his keys stolen and going out into the parking lot and them saying never to come around there again. I mean, we were literally, when we would do town hall meetings, Um, Just because I was trained in this, we would do kind of exit planning, we would figure out high ground, low ground. And then one of the reasons I ended up doing those six hour town halls was that the only real way to de-escalate was to say I would be there until the last question was asked. And so we'd start at six, we often went past midnight, and we would just just have it out. And that's an important part of the democratic process. I think for today, you know, while we had social media then, it was nothing compared to now. Nothing compared to the echo chambers. People talk about Fox. Fox is, in some ways, the, you know, not even the tail wagging the dog anymore, right? It's responding to what's coming up um, pseudo organically from uh, from the edges. And I think once you get into that space, and that was one of the real heartbreaking things. I mean, I met. I had five separate Tea Party groups in my district. I would meet with them every week and I would spend real time with them. We would deliberate together because at the time I really still was a believer in deliberative democracy, that that if we spend time together discussing it out, we'll, we'll get to those places. But I'd spend a few hours with them and then I'd come back a week later and not only had they lost ground, they'd gone back to further than where we'd started that week. And you just simply cannot keep up. And again, I think one of the things I appreciated at the time was because I was one of those who was like, why are people watching Fox? Well, you wake up in the morning, you read your local paper not knowing it's owned by a conservative, you know conglomerate. You then get in the in the car to work. you hear a radio station. You don't know that's owned by a conservative station. You get forward some things from friends at work. Don't pay a lot of attention to the links. By the time you get to Hannity at night or Carlson, he's just the seventh or eighth person stating a slightly more, you know, bombastic version of what you've heard from seven or eight different news sources. So it does create a real serious challenge for us going forward, along with some other structural challenges. But um, uh, yeah, I think this is where we, we see the roots of it back there and we see um, how challenging it's going to be going forward.
0: So uh, I, I realize we're coming up uh, at the end of our window here. There are days that I feel um, pessimistic about the future of the country. And there are days that I feel optimistic about it. Uh, The last couple of weeks have given me hope for optimism, a reason for optimism. And frankly, the Open Society Foundations and work that you are invested in also gives me optimism. So how do you, you know, what is your feeling on the outlook uh, for the country today?
1: You know, I think we're going to break big in one direction or the other. Um, We focus a lot on how things could deteriorate, but it's also important to remember that these are reactionary forces and they are reacting to progress, and that it's not hard to imagine things being better than they've ever been. If you look historically... The number of examples of genuinely multiracial or multiethnic democracies existing with equality under law and then being sustained with equality under law is an extremely limited set. So what we're doing here is we are finally doing the real part of the American experiment, which is can you do sort of continental level democracy um, and do it with a genuinely pluralistic and uh, diverse society? And it was clear, if you look back in American history, there have been basically two moments where a white majority has lost power. One was after Reconstruction or during Reconstruction, and that ended the way most of most of the times it ends around the world, which is ethnic cleansing and terrorism by that majority ethnic group. Uh, and you saw an ethnic cleansing uh, or at least demographic shift of the South. You saw an annihilation through uh, lynching and other means of uh, from a point where a majority of the legislature of South Carolina was black at one point. Um, one of the most telling phrases in American history is since Reconstruction. Every time there's the first African American since Reconstruction. And we like to think about how we're on constant progress, but then we're citing back to something 150 years ago and saying the first since, you know, we we're there 150 years ago. The second, though, was California in the 90s, and California in the 90s followed a similar experience where the Republicans went for a racially charged attempt to run up their numbers with uh, Prop 187 and a number of things that were happening at the time. And what they did was they drove together a multiracial coalition, a pro-democracy, pro-open society, multiracial majority that continues to, to rule till this day. Um where before that, you know, Muslims in California, Asian Americans in California were not necessarily Democrats. It was a Republican choice to say we are going to be an ethno nationalist party that drove together something that is the America we dream of, a multiracial America. Trump is in many ways as the backlash to Obama, um, but also I think we underestimate how much the sort of NAFTA disillusionment and hollowing out of middle America feeds into that as a, as a one-two punch, gets us to a point today where that's either going to be the last gasp or the dying gasp of this ethno-nationalist uh, impulse that gets us through to a better America than we've ever known, which I think is is the most likely pattern, or it breaks the American experiment and i think that you know technology is making those odds less good um uh, as are a number of other factors but i also want to give a shout out to joe biden i mean joe biden is not the um uh movement leader that i uh you know that i would that that anyone expected him to be, but he has gone bold. And I think this is a fundamental shift in our politics that isn't actually about left, right, and center. It's about bold versus incremental. And I think what President Biden has understood and the team around him has understood is that middle America wants bold. They don't want incremental. They are not feeling like we're really close to having the American dream again. And that's what I see when you put all these pieces together, the CHIPS bill, the infrastructure bill, climate change. This is about a new American dream that leaves no region or race behind. And that's a vision people can get really excited about because there are a lot of parts of America that have been left behind, both racially and geographically. And it is part of what's straining the social contract. As you see so many jobs and so much wealth concentrated in a few zip codes, that's just not the continental democracy that was designed. So I think if we can continue to produce these kinds of results Implement the results, communicate the results, and then continue to eke out elections by pro-democracy, pro-rule of law majorities, then I think you would guess that we are within seven or eight years of getting through this inevitable uh, disruption to get towards a more perfect union.
0: Tom, I wish we had a 20-hour podcast because I could talk to you for hours more. Um, I will close just by saying thank you. Thank you for your time today, but most importantly, for a lifetime of service to others uh, and the important work that you are engaged in today. So thank you.
1: Well, thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all the great work you did at the White House um, and a lot of lives saved from the work you did. And um, good luck with the podcast and, and beyond.
0: I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffershow on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.